The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. We were taking a break from the Gospel of John this summer, got feedback from you and input, got a lot of great input and feedback in a survey I put together, uh, probably 30 topics that you said you'd be interested in listening to. We only have about 12 weeks to work with, so I had to prioritize those, so I'm pretty much preaching and teaching on uh, the ones that were given most requests in terms of topics to what does the Bible have to say. And So we began this series a few weeks ago. First, we talked about Scripture itself, the sufficiency of Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture, and how that was going to be the foundation of everything we study this summer and all these very specific, particular, sometimes challenging topics that we're looking at. And after we did the Word of God, then the next week we did Speaking in Tongues. Got great feedback there, good discussion. The next week we did... Election and what does God have to say about election? And then last week we did what does the Bible have to say about government? By the way, these are all available on the web. If you miss a week, get caught up. Uh, the goal here is basic exposure on the fundamentals of all of these issues. So it's survey-like, nothing comprehensive. So no doubt there's a question that will not be answered on any given topic. And that is also true today as the topic at hand is what does the Bible have to say about Roman Catholicism? And I started formally teaching on Roman Catholicism from a biblical perspective in 1994. A class I taught many times, and uh, actually one time recently, about five years ago, I did a 10-week series on Roman Catholicism, an hour and a half each night on Sunday. So there's no way we can plumb the depths of what there is to say. So I had to distill it down and make a priority. What did I want to highlight in terms of Roman Catholicism? So I just want to share 10 truths with you today about Roman Catholicism. Uh, somebody said this week, oh, you're teaching on Roman Catholicism? Yikes, you're brave. And I, I really didn't think about it. I was like, what's the big deal? <laughs> I'm just gonna, we're just teaching the Bible. Um, so that needs to be our perspective. But what they said was true. There's a book written called Ten Hot Potatoes of Christianity that a Christian author wrote on. And he was dealing with topics that every other Christian refused to deal with. The hot potato issues that you're not supposed to talk about, I guess. Roman Catholicism is one of those. Just we kind of avoid it or ignore it or whatever. But that's not my approach. And the reason I'm talking about it is because it's something that a consensus of you wanted to hear about from a biblical point of view. But uh, by way of introduction, just so you know, I grew up as a Roman Catholic, Roman Catholic home, youngest of ten children, very traditional, informed Roman Catholic home, a very strict Roman Catholic home, a practicing Roman Catholic home. Youngest of ten children, 12 years of Roman Catholic education, taken very seriously at, at our house. I remember during the Lent season, we would go to church every morning, Monday through Friday, with my dad at 6 a.m. for Mass. And during that time, every night, saying the rosary around his bed on our knees, the entire family. That's how it committed uh, to Roman Catholicism, our family was. So 12 years of Catholic education, even in about second or third grade, I just distinctly remember that maybe someday God was calling me to be a priest. And then I saw a cute girl when I was 17 and decided I didn't want to go to the priesthood. <laughs> but anyway. So just so you know, my background is Roman Catholic. Uh, and it was at age 19, actually at age 17, a former Roman Catholic who was 10 years older than me shared the gospel with me for the first time. 17 years as a Christian, 12 years of Roman Catholic school, 12 years of Roman Catholic theology. And I was 17 when I first heard the saving gospel. 
Two years later, I became a Christian at a Protestant college. And when I got saved, I tenaciously began to study Roman Catholicism because I was confused. My first reaction was, wow, how did I miss all this truth growing up in the church? Man, I just must have been a knucklehead not paying attention and the truth was there in Roman Catholicism and it was my fault and so now I need to go back and learn everything I didn't learn and then I did go back to the Catholic Church after I became a Christian and realized uh, actually this truth, this new truth I've learned is not there. It's not there. I read the Bible for the first time when I was 19 years old. Roman Catholic for 18 years never read the Bible. And I remember reading the Bible at this Protestant college because you had to. I wanted to play basketball there, so they said, well, you've got to take the Bible courses. I said, okay. So I had to read Old Testament survey, New Testament survey, and that was the first time I ever read the Bible. And the there are some things that prominently jumped out at me and in my mind as I read the whole Bible from cover to cover for the first time in my life, having been raised as a Catholic. One of the most uh, basic things that jumped out at me was, where is Mary? She is not in the Bible. At least she wasn't in the Old Testament anywhere. She wasn't in Paul's epistles anywhere. She wasn't mentioned at all by Peter, Paul, James, John, the pillars of the church anywhere. That befuddled me. What is going on? And then the other thing that threw me for a loop or just jumped out at me was the, how the Bible condemned idolatry and graven images. So those were the two biggest things. Oh, and the, the third one was, that I, came, I finally came to a realization for the first time in my life at age 19 when I was reading the Gospel of John for the first time in my life at the college for the class was that Jesus is eternal God. I did not know that growing up as a Catholic. I don't ever remember being taught that or it ever being emphasized. All I ever remember was people saying, Jesus is the Son of God. And then it was hardly ever explained, well, what does that mean? All, to me, all it meant was Jesus had some kind of a unique and special relationship with the Father. That's all it meant. It just went unexplained. Jesus is the Son of God. And when you're talking to a Catholic or anybody and you ask them, who is Jesus? Usually a Roman Catholic will say, Jesus is the Son of God. Jehovah's Witnesses will say that. That's actually a correct answer. The next, you need to follow up though. What does that mean? That Jesus is the Son of God? I wouldn't have been able to answer that as a Roman Catholic. According to Scripture, the Gospel of John especially, Jesus is called the Son of God. John means something very specific. The Son of God means Jesus has the same nature, the same divine essence and being as Almighty, Eternal Father. Jesus is God. That's what it means. Jesus is the Son of God means, according to the Bible, Jesus is the Eternal, Almighty Son of God, Yahweh of the Old Testament. That was the greatest revelation to me when I read the Bible that I did not hear for 19 years growing up as a Catholic. And it changed my life. Who Jesus was. Uh, a little more introduction here. In my experience, uh, interacting and talking about Catholicism, both with believers, unbelievers, Catholics, non-Catholics, fellow Protestants, here's, this is just my experience. Here's what I have seen routinely. The biggest critics of Roman Catholicism, from a biblical point of view, are former Roman Catholics who have become Christians. They are the biggest critics. They're the most discerning and specific about their view of Roman Catholicism. And I would be in that camp. I'm considered by some people critical of Roman Catholicism. That is not my intent, but there's a reason for that. I know what I got saved out of. Then on the flip side, my experience in talking to some Christians 
who are the most sympathetic to Roman Catholicism and say, oh, it doesn't matter, or, oh, we're all just the same, or oh, we're all just one, and we're all the family of God, and we're all Christians, and you shouldn't make any contrasts or distinctions. The most sympathetic Bible-believing Christians regarding Roman Catholics, in my experience, are ignorant Protestants. Ignorant, not just ignorant about everything, but ignorant about Roman Catholic theology, even Roman Catholic practice. Many of whom have never set foot in a Catholic church sat through a Mass and understood the meaning of a Mass or confession or the sacraments. There's a lot of ignorance there. And so I begin to, and that's when I just tell them, try to enlighten them with truth. Well, here's what Roman Catholicism really does and practices and believes. I know. I was one. And sometimes they go, wow, I didn't know that. So that's just my experience. So my goal today um, is to look at Roman Catholicism and some of its main practices according to Roman Catholic authority. So I'm not going to be quoting uh, just second-hand sources at all. Because some of you, no doubt, know a Roman Catholic. Raise your hand if you know a Roman Catholic. Okay, that's everybody just about. Um, so I'm not going to be quoting uh, some nun at some particular school. I'm not going to be referring to as an authority uh, your second or third cousin who says he's a Catholic. Uh, or the local Catholic priest even. Or somebody who grew up as a Catholic. I'm not going to do that today. When I'm referring to Roman Catholic doctrine and what they teach and what they practice, I am going to only refer and quote one source, and it is the authoritative source of the Roman Catholic Church. And it, is the, it was published in 1992, and it's the Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church. And it was sealed and approved by Pope John Paul II, who writes the introduction to it. And it was compiled by Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger at the time in 1992, who is now the living pope. This is the official position of the Roman Catholic Church. It is over 800 pages long. I've read most of it since 1992. And so that's what I'm referring to in these 10 points that I want to highlight about Roman Catholicism. Because you might hear something today and say, oh, I've never heard that, or I didn't know Catholics believe that, or you might even be a Catholic and think, well, I don't believe that, because I, I remember talking to a Roman Catholic. They were committed to Roman Catholicism, and I was talking about a certain practice that is unbiblical, and they said, well, I don't do that. I choose not to do that. Well, you don't have an option as a Catholic to choose not to do that because that's at the core of what your church teaches. You don't have that option. You're a bad Catholic. So that's what we're going to be referring to. It's called the Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church, and I refer to it as capital C, capital C, capital C in the notes, just so you know. And the page number, in the event that you wanted to go to the public library, it's right there. You can check it out and do your homework. I do want to start with, uh, before we start, point number one, verse I want to read, and that's Acts 17, the Apostle Paul just so you know my approach, and also what I want your approach to be, I want you to examine Scriptures together with me. I don't want you to just be sitting there receiving a lecture. That's not good enough. Acts 17, the Apostle Paul is one of, on one of his missionary journeys. He goes into the city of Thessalonica. He preaches the Gospel on three consecutive Sabbath days in the synagogue, talking about Jesus Christ. His approach was, Acts 17, verse 2, listen to how Paul preached and taught. According to Paul's custom... He went to them in Thessalonica, and for three Sabbaths, or Saturdays, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. That's what I want to do this morning. I want to reason with you from Scripture. Because Scripture, the Bible, is the highest authority. So that's what I want to do. Actually, that's my goal all summer long. In every topic we talk about, I want to reason with you from Scripture. Examine everything in light of Scripture, as 1 Thessalonians 5 says to do. So he reasoned with the Thessalonians 
from Scripture. And there were two responses. Verse 4, some were persuaded and believed the truth of the Word of God. Some, probably a minority. Then there was another reaction, verse 5. But the Jews, literally the unbelieving Jews, who rejected Paul's gospel, who rejected the authority of Scripture, became jealous when they heard Paul reasoning from the Scripture. That happens. You always get a reaction. And any time I get a reaction, I want it to be it was a reaction because somebody was confronted with the truth of the Bible, not something offensive or misleading or deceptive that I said as a human. I just want it to be truth. That's all. So those could be two possible responses. Well, anyway, so the Thessalonians, they chased him out of town. Then look at verse 10. And the brethren, or Christians, immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night so he wouldn't get killed to another local city called Berea. And when Paul and Silas arrived in the city of Berea and began to teach there, they also went to the synagogue of the Jews. Verse 11 is key. Now these, the Bereans were more noble-minded. They were more legitimate in terms of how they used their reasoning and thinking. They were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. Why were they more noble-minded? For they received the Word. That means they received the Word of God. They received Scripture. They welcomed scriptural truth. They received the Word of God with great eagerness. Here's the key. Examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. In other words, they heard Paul preach and they listened to Paul and then they took what Paul said and contrasted it with Scripture to see if what Paul was saying was consistent with Scripture. And if it was, they welcomed it and received it. And we need to do the same thing. So that's what we're going to do in light taking Roman Catholicism and we're going to examine it in light of Scripture. We're going to reason from Scripture and when there is truth, we should Welcome it. So let's go ahead and look at it. Ten points I want to say about Roman Catholicism. Here we go. And we're going to move somewhat quickly. Starting at the top of your handout there, notice I quoted Galatians 1.8 where the Apostle Paul says, but even if we... He's talking to the Galatian church which he planted, fellow believers, and he said, even if we apostles, if apostles come into your church, or even an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel or truth other than the one we originally preached to you the first time, which was true, let him, let that person, let that teacher be eternally condemned. Wow. The greatest danger in the world, the greatest susceptibility in the world is to undermine the truth of the gospel, the heart of the Christian gospel, for it is the gospel that saves eternal souls. And that's what I think the danger of Roman Catholicism is. In many ways, it undermines the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's ten, or ten points I want to look at right now. On each one of the ten points that I made, by the way, uh, I either give a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Thumbs up simply meaning this is a biblical position that the Roman Catholic Church has. And then thumbs down means it's an, a compromised position that they hold. It could be partially true, but they mix error with it. And as a result, it is not good. It is dangerous. So let's go ahead and look at these ten principles. Point number one, starting at the foundation regarding Roman Catholicism and their beliefs, is that God is triune. God is a trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit make up the one God of the Bible. They are three persons. They are eternal in their existence. All three are uncreated. They all three existed in perfect harmony and unity before the creation of the world. They are coexistent. They share the same essence. Three persons. One God, that is clearly what the Bible teaches. It 
teaches that God is triune. It is a mystery. It boggles the human imagination, but that is how God has revealed Himself for who He is. God the Father is God. Jesus is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Three persons, one God, all eternity, existing in all glory. Isaiah 6, 3 in the Old Testament says this, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh. Yahweh is God's personal name. Jesus is called Yahweh in the New Testament. In the Greek translation. Wow. Holy, holy, holy. Holy are you, Father. Holy are you, Son. Holy are you, Spirit. Making up the one God, Yahweh, who is Almighty. And then in the New Testament, Jesus said, when you make a disciple and they come to believe in Christ, baptize them like we're going to do today and do it in the name, the singular name, the one name, the one and only name of the one true God and His name is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. God has one name. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. So the Bible, I can give you a bunch of more verses. Don't have time. But the Bible affirms and teaches that God is triune. The Roman Catholic Church's official position on the Trinity is orthodox. It is correct. And they've never deviated from it. And they've held strong to it all these years. So I give the Roman Catholic Church a thumbs up on their historic interpretation of the meaning of the Trinity. And here's a quote out of their catechism that I was referring to. First published in 1992. This one is in the 1995 edition. The mystery of the Holy, the Most Holy Trinity is the central mystery of Christian faith and life. I would actually agree with that sentence. It is. It all starts with who God is, is the foundation of everything. That's why when you're talking to a Roman Catholic who is not a believer, and it is possible to have a Roman Catholic who is not a believer, just in the same way if you're talking to a Baptist who is not a believer, or talking to somebody at GBF who is not a believer, that is possible. So if you're talking to a Roman Catholic who is not a believer, boy, the first place to start is on the common ground of the most important truth in the world, and that is who is God, the, tr the Trinity. Start there. Great common ground. It's like you have a jump start when you're trying to evangelize a Roman Catholic because there is no other religion in the world that believes in a biblical view of the Trinity save the Roman Catholic Church and Orthodox biblical Christianity. Point number one. God is triune, Roman Catholicism, thumbs up. Point number two, the Bible is the final authority. According to Jesus, according to the apostles, according to Scripture, according to the Old Testament prophets, according to God Himself and what He was revealed, we believe, we affirm, the Bible teaches that it is the final authority, the sole authority. That's the first point in our statement of faith here at GBF. Grace, Bible, fellowship. The Bible is sufficient. It is authoritative. It is inspired. It is of God. It dictates everything else. It tells us how to pray. It has authority over the leaders, authority over the elders, authority over the people, authority over the church, authority over human tradition, over everything. Scripture. We talked about that. Jesus said as He was praying to the Father just before He died, Father, Thy Word, and He's talking about scriptural revelation, Thy Word is truth. And we talked about that. One of Jesus' favorite sayings of authority as He taught publicly, it is is written. And then he would reveal his truth because Jesus believed that the Bible, Scripture, written revelation was the final authority on spiritual truth. Matthew 4, 4 is an example. Three times Jesus received temptations from Satan. Jesus combated, combated the temptations by saying every single time, it is written. It stands written. And what he was saying was that scriptural truth is authoritative 
over everything, over Satan's lies. So the Bible is the final authority. So there is one authority we have. And it is written in Scripture that God gave the church as a gift. The 66 books of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation that the church has held on to for 2,000 years. Not so in Roman Catholicism. They don't have just one authority, one final ultimate authority regarding religious practice and spiritual truth. They don't say that the Bible is the, the sole authority like we do. That's a huge difference right there. As a matter of fact, the Bible is one of many authorities. And I actually listed authorities in the Roman Catholic Church in descending order, uh, order of priority, according to the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church believes that the Roman Catholic Church itself as an entity is an authority. And as a matter of fact, it has greater authority than the written Scriptures. As a matter of fact, uh, the Catholic Church says there is no salvation apart from the Roman Catholic Church. You think I'm dogmatic? That sounds like a dogmatic exclusive statement. So there's their major authority. The Roman Catholic Church, like I said last week, Roman Catholic Church, by definition, by doctrine, is a theocracy. There is no greater, higher authority on planet Earth in their estimation than the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, and then also an authority is the Pope, the living Pope. He is, he is the vicar of Christ. He is Christ on earth. Whereas the Bible says no. The church is Christ on earth, the body of Christ, not the Pope. So they elevate a man called the Pope. He represents the church. He is its priest and prophet and Christ himself incarnate on earth. And he can speak authoritatively and infallibly when he gives a decree ex cathedra out of the seat of authority and make up new doctrine. Here's another problem. Scripture is not the final authority because the Roman Catholic Church believes in ongoing revelation. And we would say, no, we don't believe in ongoing revelation. We believe the Bible is sufficient, the sufficiency of Scripture. And if you believe in ongoing revelation, you undermine the sufficiency of Scripture, not just its authority. So the Pope has unprecedented, unbelievable authority, even authority over Scripture formally. Page 546 in your Catholic Catechism, if you want to look it up. What else has authority in Roman Catholicism? Tradition, church tradition, Roman Catholic church tradition, of all these decrees and councils and things that accumulated over time, and that's why they have a catechism over 800 pages long. It's a lot of stuff. Tradition is considered to have more authority over scriptural authority in the Roman Catholic church. Uh, by the way, the Roman Catholic church would say they believe in the Word of God. We believe in the Word of God. We believe the Word of God is authoritative. But what they mean by that is two things. They believe the Word of God e equals two things. The written Word of God, their scriptures, which includes six or seven uninspired books, by the way, the Apocrypha. The Word of God is written scripture. And they also say the Word of God is oral tradition. And at the Council of Trent in 1546, they made that an official decree of the church. 1546, kind of late. But that's what they say the Word of God is. When they say the Word of God, they're not talking just about the Bible. Talking about church tradition that developed over time. Other authorities in the Roman Catholic Church. The bishops, also known as the magisterium. The magisterium is the collection of the bishops who have authoritative teaching power. They have authority over the Bible. Only they can accurately interpret the Bible for the people. The bishops. And the Pope is the greatest of the bishops. First and foremost of the bishops. As a matter of fact, years Many times throughout church history, the Roman Catholic Church has actually banned Bible reading of its people and made formal injunctions from popes and decrees. You are not to dare, whatever you do, don't read your Bible. You can't. They've even banished Bibles and put it on forbidden lists. Really, read your history. It's amazing. 
That is not true today, but it was many times all throughout Roman Catholic Church history because they were afraid that the people would get the Bible and try to read it and understand it on their own, and then they couldn't control everything was what it was all about, control. So the magisterium or the bishops is an authority. Uh, I made this uh, statement earlier. The Apocrypha released seven books. There are many more books in the Apocrypha, but seven were recognized as authoritative inspired scripture in 1546 at the Council of Trent. And then, yes, eventually the Bible is seen as an authority, <clears throat> not the ultimate authority, but it is one of many authorities. And by the way, it's only an authority insofar as it is correctly translated by the Catholic Church, and you have to use the right version, the Roman Catholic version, which ultimately finds its source in a Latin version, which is much later than the original Greek and Hebrew especially the Greek of the New Testament. So those are the authorities in the Roman Catholic Church. By the way, beginning in the 1830s and many times since then, another authority that exists in the church are these apparitions or appearances, supposedly, of Mary. 1830, she appeared in France. And then she appeared in uh, Ireland. And then she appeared in Portugal. And then she appeared in Chicago under a subway on a wall. These pictures, revelations. She speaks, supposedly. These phantoms and apparitions of Mary. And sometimes she's got a crucified hands with blood dripping down and a crown on her head and she speaks truth and revelation and people write it down. And if the Pope allows, it becomes authoritative decrees and doctrines of the Catholic Church. It becomes an authority. Uh, church councils, the Council of Trent, Vatican I, Vatican II in the 1900s became authoritative in the Catholic Church. These are just additional ones I thought of later. And then the Catholic Catechism of 1992, authoritative source of the Roman Catholic Church. So that's what they say. So they've got many authorities, ongoing authorities, and they all put the Bible in an inferior position. Huge difference. So on that position, that's a thumbs down on the position of the Roman Catholic Church. The Bible is the final authority. Number three, there's only one mediator according to the Bible. And by mediator, I mean a go-between between sinful humans and a sinless, eternal, holy God. Because of our sin, we can't go to God on our own. We need a go-between. We need an intercessor. We need a mediator to bridge the gap. And that was God's plan to send. Actually, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit created this world. This world fell into sin. God knew it was going to happen. Jesus, who was God, who did not have a body, willingly came down here, took on a human body, lived the perfect life for 33 years, willingly died on a cross, got punished for the sin of the world by the Father, ascended back into heaven, went back to heaven with the Father and the Holy Spirit where He came from. And the reason He did that was to be a mediator between a holy God and sinful people who needed a Savior. That's biblical Christianity. That is the heart of the gospel. And that's why the Bible says there is only one mediator. 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one mediator between God and humanity. The man Christ Jesus. The man, Jesus was 100% human when He became a human. The man Christ, He is divine. The man Christ Jesus, the incarnate God named Jesus, is the mediator. He had to be 100% God and 100% man to be the perfect mediator between sinful humans who are finite and an eternal, infinite God. There's only one mediator. The Bible is clear on that. Yet the Roman Catholic Church for years, centuries, has said that Mary is a mediator between sinful humanity and God. And sinful humanity and Jesus. So their formal position. Uh, I quoted it there. Uh, page 274, 275. The Catholic Catechism says this. Speaking of Mary... Her manifold intercession. See, there it is. She intercedes for sinners. She prays for sinners. She appeases God for sinners. That's the work of Jesus. Her manifold intercession continues. It is ongoing. That's the work of the Holy Spirit that is being supplanted here. 
Her manifold intercession continues to bring us, get this, the gifts of eternal salvation. Wow. Mary brings us eternal salvation as a mediator? Therefore, the Catholic Church says, the Blessed Virgin, capital B, capital V, which you will find nowhere in the Bible, is invoked in the Roman Catholic Church under the titles, these are official titles they have given her, they call her Advocate, where the Gospel of John says, no, the Holy Spirit is the Advocate. Supplanted his role. They also call her Helper, which Jesus said, the Holy Spirit is the Helper. Supplanted his role. They call her benefactress, the one who is inherently good. Jesus said, no man is good but God alone. And finally, they call her mediatrix, the mediator. First Timothy 2, we just read it. There is one mediator, Jesus Christ, the God-man. Very clear, the most common Catholic prayer. I grew up saying it a zillion times all the time. Still have it memorized to this day. Hail Mary. That means venerate Mary. Be in awe of Mary. Pray to Mary. Worship Mary. That's what it means. Hail Mary, full of grace. Only God is full of grace. Hail Mary, full of grace. Then it goes on to say, Holy Mary, Mother of God, Holy Mary, sinless Mary, which they teach she's not sinless. She wasn't when she was on earth. Holy Mary, Mother of God. Scripture never calls her the Mother of God. Never. God doesn't have a mother. God has always existed. Jesus has always existed. Jesus came down and took on a human body that he got through Mary's egg, but he had no human father. Scripture does not call Mary the mother of God. She is not the mother of God, but that's an official title they give her. Holy Mary, mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Most common prayer that a Catholic is supposed to pray, asking Mary to pray intercede so that we might be forgiven of our sin. No, there's only one mediator. Thumbs down. Number four, every person is a sinner. Roman Catholic Church does not teach this. Every person is a sinner except Jesus the God-man. Romans 3.23, ever since Adam and Eve, who were real people, disobeyed, they sinned, God punished them, they imparted a sin nature to every other person that would be born, save Jesus Christ, who was born of a virgin without a human dad, therefore bypassing original sin. Jesus never sinned. Everybody else has. Romans 3.23, all have sinned. Every person has sinned. You are born sinful. You are conceived in sin. You are a sinner in the womb. Psalm 51, verse 5. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 1 Kings 8.46, Solomon, as he was praying, said, There is no one who does not sin. No one. Mark 10.18, no one is good except God alone. Jesus said that. And he is God, so he could say that about himself. 1 John, the apostle. John the apostle said this, If we say we have no sin, if we say we are sinless, and this would apply to Mary, whom John knew as a sinful woman, John the apostle who was taking care of Mary after Jesus died, John went on to write and said, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Two verses later, he says, if we, if we say we have no sin, we make God a liar, and we're liars. We're lying. So every person is a sinner. Yet the position of the Catholic Church is that Mary lived the perfect life. She never sinned. As a matter of fact, did you know this? She was born without sin. And that's called the Immaculate Conception. The Immaculate Conception is not the virgin birth. It is about Mary, who was supposedly born sinless, bypassed the sin of Adam. <clears throat> Quote, 274, page. Catholic Catechism. The Immaculate Virgin, as they're talking about Mary, was preserved free from all stain of original sin. Wow. No, she wasn't. Then they go on. 
when the course of her earthly life was finished, she was taken up body and soul into heaven, heavenly glory and exalted as the queen over all things. So the Immaculate Conception is in that phrase and also the Assumption of Mary. The Catholic Church believes that Mary never died. She just whoosh, caught up in heaven because she was perfect. She never sinned. And she was born that way without sin. The Immaculate Conception, by the way, was made a doctrine as recent as 1854. 1854? Why did it take 1,800 years to acknowledge something that was so basic and fundamental if it were true? Okay, number five, Jesus' death is totally sufficient for all sin. Totally sufficient for all sin. <clears throat> John 19:13, when Jesus was on the cross, the end of hanging on the cross for six plus hours, he knew he was dying as a sacrifice for sin to be punished by the Father. And when he was about to give his life to the Father and be buried and rise and go back to heaven, Jesus said, it is finished. It stands finished. The work of the cross for the forgiveness of sin for all time is done in my death on the cross. Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection and his ongoing life is all that is needed and required to take care of the problem of sin and provide forgiveness of sin for all sinners. Scripture is clear. Jesus said, it is finished. There doesn't, we don't need ongoing sacrifices to keep atoning for sin. But that's what the Catholic Church says. Every time you go to a Catholic church on a Sunday, they have Mass, and the Mass is a sacrifice. And when the priest takes the bread and the cup and he raises it like this and he says a prayer, it's called transubstantiation, and it changes that uh, wine and that bread literally into the very body of Jesus Christ, and he is immolated in the air. He is crucified literally again. And they have to keep crucifying him over and over and over. And every time he is re-crucified, that allows for more forgiveness of sin. Where Scripture is clear, no, he died one time, one sacrifice for all time. Hebrews 10, 12, 14 says this. Jesus, through his death on the cross, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time. There it is. Then he ascended, went back to heaven, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until all his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time, those who are sanctified or saved or who believe in his gospel. Whereas the Roman Catholic Church already alluded to, it says that sin is atoned for in Roman Catholicism by many different ways, not just the death of Christ, through the Mass primarily, through baptism. Baptism actually helps forgive your sin. Through Mary's prayers, you get some sin forgiven. And her works, you get some sin forgiven. Confessing your sins to a priest will forgive some of your sins. Doing good works will help forgive some of your sins. Doing the stations of the cross during Lent will forgive some of your sins. Praying to dead Christians will forgive some of your sins. Doing indulgences where you pay money to the church will help forgive the sins of your dead relatives. They still do that today. I did that growing up. Indulgences, which started the Reformation. And then finally, the fires of purgatory after you die will purge any remaining sins that you have in hopes that you might go to heaven someday. So it doesn't believe in the sufficient death of Jesus Christ for all sin. Thumbs down. Number six, prayer is directed to God alone according to Scripture. Sam just read from that in Isaiah. God is the only God. He is a jealous God. He wants worship only for Himself because He's the only one that is worthy and He made it clear. Prayer is directed toward God. Veneration and worship is only directed toward God and no one else. Jesus taught His disciples in Matthew 6, 6, when you pray, pray like this, Our Father who art in heaven. That's how you pray. That's it. You pray to our Father. You pray to God and that's it. And then he later added many times, you pray in my name through the Holy Spirit. So prayer is through the triune God and the triune God alone. 
through him to him alone. Jeremiah 29, 12, Call upon me, God said. Pray to me, God said, and I will listen to you. The Catholic Church says you pray to many things. You don't just pray to God. You pray to Mary. As a matter of fact, most prayers, many I grew up praying mostly to Mary, the Hail Mary, and many other prayers written for Mary. Praying to statues. We had statues all over our house. We prayed to those statues. We kissed those statues. Praying to idols. You're supposed to pray to angels to help you. You're supposed to pray to St. Christopher so he helps you not get in a car crash. You're supposed to pray to St. Anthony when you lose something so you can find it. And on and on and on it goes. A clear violation of Scripture. Prayer is directed only to God. Thumbs down. Number seven. Salvation is through Christ alone. We've referred to this a little bit already. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Eternal life. Eternal life is only through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father who is in heaven except through me. Jesus is the only way to get to heaven. It's not Jesus plus Mary, Jesus plus works, Jesus plus church, Jesus plus this. Jesus, Him alone. Who He is, His work on the cross. That's it. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that there's salvation in many ways. Through the Mass, primarily. And every time you do that, you get a little bit of sin. You got last week's sin forgiven every time you take Mass. The problem with Roman Catholicism and all these things like the Mass and penance and all these works you do, the problem is none of it takes care of future sins. That is the problem. That's why it has to be ongoing. Jesus' death 2,000 years ago even takes care of our future sins. Amazing. A miracle. So salvation is attained not through Christ alone in the Catholic Church, but through the Mass, through Mary, through sacraments, through prayers, through purgatory after you die, and through the Roman Catholic Church or human effort. Number eight, salvation is by grace alone, according to the Bible. It is by grace alone. It means it's a gift from God. You didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. My works can't save me. God is the Savior. He saves sinners. He initiates. He calls saviors. He is chasing after saviors. I mean sinners, sorry. He's chasing after sinners. So it is by grace, God's grace, not our works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says this. The Apostle Paul says, By grace, Christian, you have been saved. By God's grace, by His mercy, by His goodness, by His gift. By grace, you've been saved. Past tense, you have been saved. You don't need your future sins taken care of some other way. You have been saved. It was through faith. That's it. Believing in what Jesus did on the cross and who He is. By grace, you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of human works, so that no human could boast, because God is the Savior and Him alone. The Roman Catholic Church, page 302, just one example. Salvation comes pretty much by works plus faith. You need faith, but you also need the works to go with it. So salvation in the Catholic Church is little by little, it's incremental, it's ongoing, it's never secure. You could fall from grace, you could commit a mortal sin, you could be a Christian and then not be a Christian tomorrow. And so you can never have security in this life, and that's number nine. You can have assurance, according to the Bible, and security right now in this life, that you are a Christian, that your sins are forgiven, and that when you die, you immediately go into heaven to be with God forever. The Bible teaches that, clearly. We can have security about our salvation right now. First John 5.13 says this, These things I have written to you, Christian, who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. That is security. That is assurance. That is a great truth. That's why Christians meet to celebrate. Thank God. Thank you for saving me. Thank you, Jesus, said the song, right? My sins are forgiven. I know you. I'm in the family of God. I'm going to heaven when I die. I can count on it. It is sure. Romans 8.30. That's what the whole chapter of Romans 8 about. 
is security in Jesus Christ. Those whom Christ justified or saved in history, He will glorify in the future. It is guaranteed you can count on it. Not so in the Catholic Church. In Catholicism, there is no assurance or security in this life. Page 506, 507. I'll never forget when I asked someone who was very close to me who knew their Catholic theology very well and they were a very committed Catholic and I'm trying to share the Gospel with them and I read 1 John 5.13 and they said, that's ridiculous, where it said you can know right now that you have salvation. And they told me, no one can know that in this life. No one. Not even the Pope can know that. That's good Roman Catholic theology, but that's bad biblical theology. But at least he was honest. So the Gospel is good news because it lets us know we can have security insurance right now in this life. And finally, number 10. So thumbs down to number 9. Death brings instant heaven or hell. According to the Bible, according to Jesus, when you die, you instantly go somewhere, either heaven or hell. Where is Michael Jackson right now? He is either in heaven or in hell. That's what the Bible says. There's no question about that. I don't know where he is because I'm not God. But there's only two options. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says, Absent from the body, as soon as your soul leaves your body at the point of death, absent from the body, home with the Lord if you're a Christian. No soul sleep. don't have to wait forever. If you're a Christian and you die, your soul immediately goes into the presence of Jesus Christ upon death. If you're not a believer and you die, your soul immediately goes into torment, separation from God, or from hell. Jesus said that in Luke 16.23 where he did not tell a parable, he actually told a true story because of the names of the characters. Abraham was a real guy. It's not a parable. This is a real story. The rich man was an unbeliever and it says he died and boom, immediately he was in hell. He was conscious. He was being punished. His, his brothers were still alive on earth. There was no soul sleep. He went immediately into hell. He was separated from God, separated from believers, isolated all by himself in torment. Conscious. But the Roman Catholic Church teaches that when you die, even if you've been a good Roman Catholic your whole life, you just didn't do enough. So just about, yeah, it's pretty much guaranteed that after you die, even as a good Roman Catholic, when you die, you don't go either to immediately heaven or hell. But actually, if you're a good Catholic, you will go to purgatory. The fires of purgatory. Here's a quote out of the Catholic Catechism. It's a little longer than the one in your bulletin. It says, All who die in God's grace and friendship, so if you're a friend with God, a believer in this life, but still imperfectly purified, which we all are. Jesus' death on the cross didn't take care of all of my sins. So I need more forgiveness beyond what Jesus could provide. So when I die after death, Christians undergo purification so as to achieve holiness that is necessary to enter into heaven. And the purification you receive is the burning fires of purgatory. And they purge you of your sin until you're refined like pure silver so that maybe someday, maybe in centuries or hundreds of years or thousands of years, depending upon how good you were in this life, you may end up in heaven, in purgatory. That is the official position of the Roman Catholic Church. That is not good news. Actually, that's very discouraging. So thumbs down on that one. And I just want to close by way of the simple gospel of the Bible, the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't have to do all these good works. And remember... 2,000 years of church history and memorize 800 pages of rules and regulations and works to do to think that maybe, hopefully, when you die, you don't know whether you're going to go to heaven or hell or not. The Bible is clear. If you understand that Jesus Christ is the God-man who willingly came down here, lived a perfect life for 33 years, willingly went to the cross 
even though he was innocent, willingly died on the cross and absorbed the wrath of Almighty God for the sins of sinners, was buried for three days, rose again from the dead three days later, ascended into heaven, is alive right now, reigns on high, is calling out to sinners, wooing them to himself because he wants to save sinners. And all it takes, if you don't know Jesus Christ, is to cry out to him, pray in your own heart, and ask Jesus to save you of your sin, to adopt you into his family. And if you believe that, in that very moment of time, God will answer your prayer. He will save you, forgive you of all of your sin, past, present, and future. And you will have been transferred from the domain of Satan's darkness into the kingdom of his light. Forever, that is the good news. That is true biblical Christianity. With that, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Father, we thank you again for the church that you are building, the body of believers where, as a gift to us, you allow us to come and assemble to encourage one another, to learn of you, to worship you. Thank you for the gift of your word. It's your truth. It is your mind. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that teaches it to us and presses it upon our heart. And I, God, I do pray that we would be a discerning people like the Bereans. No matter what was coming their way, they examined it in the light of scriptural truth. So help us to do that, Lord, for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.